Amen. All right, well, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 9, and of course we've been going through a study in the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and tonight we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter number 9, and to be honest with you, it's a very unique uh, passage of scripture that we'll be looking at uh, tonight in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at just the very first part of this chapter, really just the first five verses, and then we'll see next week, maybe we'll cover the rest of the chapter, or maybe we'll divide it up, uh, depending on how far we get. However, there's a lot of information here in just these five chapters. I'd like you to notice just the, the context uh, of the chapter and what's being said. In Hebrews 9 and verse 1, the Bible says this, then verily the first, and when he's referring here to the first, he's referring to, notice he says the first covenant, and of course we're in the book of Hebrews, we've been talking about the Old Covenant, New Covenant, the priesthood of Levi, and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And here he says, Then verily the first covenant, referring to the Old Covenant, had also, and he's going to tell us two things that the Old Covenant had. I want you to notice there's two of them. He says, number one, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now, the ordinances of divine service, we're, we're not going to talk about that tonight. We'll talk about that uh, maybe next week. But I do want to just remind you by way of introduction that in the Bible, the word ordinance, and here when it's referring to ordinances of divine service, in the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament covenant, we, we talked about this several weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago, uh, but the, the Old in the Old Testament law, the, the, the law was divided into two sections. And one section you might call or we might refer to as the moral law, and then there's also another section, which is referred to as the ceremonial law. And the ordinances are a reference to the ceremonial law. The ordinances are, are in the Old Testament, what's referred to as ordinances are what we would call religious rituals, ceremonies, the things of the Old Covenant that were all symbolic. That's what is an ordinance, and those things have been done away. We've talked about that, and we will continue to talk about that here in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to focus on that tonight the ordinances of the divine service. What we're going to focus on is the second thing mentioned here, and a worldly sanctuary. Now, when the Bible says here, worldly, usually when we use the word worldly, when the Bible uses the word worldly, when we use it, we're talking about like sinful. But here, the word worldly simply is referring to an earthly sanctuary. He says that the first covenant, the old covenant, had ordinances of divine service, and it had a worldly or an earthly sanctuary. And I'd like you to keep your place here in Hebrews chapter 9. This is our text, of course, for tonight. But I'd like you to go with me to Exodus chapter number 25, if you would. In the Old Testament, you've got the book of Genesis and then the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25. And we actually talked about the tabernacle on Sunday morning, if you remember. We talked about the building of the tabernacle. And tonight, and I didn't work this out. This is just how it worked out. The Holy Spirit did it for us. But tonight, we're going to look at an in-depth look at the tabernacle. On Sunday morning, we looked at the building of the tabernacle. Now we're going to look at this, uh, this structure, this building, and we're going to look at it very deeply tonight. And uh, tonight, I'm going to focus on the layout and the typology of the tabernacle of this worldly or earthly sanctuary. And I'm just going to tell you up front, tonight, uh, it's going to be a very doctrinal type uh, sermon. It, it might feel like a Bible college lecture, uh, except, you know, better, <laughs> without the heresy and, 
and, and charging you tuition or whatever. Um, but, but we're going to look at this, uh, this idea of the tabernacle. Exodus 25, if you look at verse number 8, the Bible says this. This is what God said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So when the Bible says in Hebrews 9.1 that the old covenant had a worldly sanctuary, an earthly sanctuary, it is referring to what we call the tabernacle, or here in Exodus 25.8, when God commanded them to make a sanctuary that I, this is God speaking, may dwell among them. Now, on Sunday morning, we saw how Moses came to the people and they raised the money to build the sanctuary, to build the tabernacle. Tonight, we're going to look at the tabernacle in detail. Now, I'd like you to keep your place there in Exodus, if you would. We're going to be coming back to the book of Exodus a lot throughout the sermon tonight. So I'd like you to keep a ribbon or a bookmark or something there so you can get to it. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9, and I'd like you to look at verse number 5. Now, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and we're going to dissect it uh, very detailed. But let me just get you to verse 5 real quickly just to show you something. Between verses 1 and 5, what we have is a description of the tabernacle, an in-depth, detailed description of the tabernacle. And at the end of verse number 5, the Bible says this, And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. This is referring to the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to notice the last little phrase in verse 5, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, like I said, between verses 1 and 5, we have this description of the tabernacle. Then this little section ends with the writer of Hebrews saying, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, some people believe that this statement at the end of verse 5 is the writer of Hebrews saying that he doesn't want to or doesn't feel the need to go through and explain the tabernacle. I don't believe that's accurate. I don't think that's what's being said here. And I'll explain to you what I believe is being said when we get to verse 5 at the end of the sermon. But let me just say this. If what he is saying, which I don't believe it to be the case, but if the writer of Hebrews is actually saying when he says, of which we cannot now speak particularly, if he's referring to, we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about the tabernacle, uh, let me just say this. If he's saying that, which I don't think that's what he's saying, but if he is in fact saying that, uh, then he's saying that because he's talking to first century Jews. If you remember, the, the book of Hebrews is written to first century Jews that are saved, and it's helping them understand how to transition out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, how to correlate the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. So, of course, if you're talking to first century Jews, then you would say, I don't really need to explain the tabernacle to you because these people grew up in Judaism. They have a very thorough understanding of the tabernacle. However, we are not Jews, at least the vast majority of us are not. Uh, we're Gentiles, and you are probably not familiar or as familiar with the tabernacle as you can be or should be. And so tonight, I would like for us to study this concept of the tabernacle. I think it would behoove you, it would behoove us to study it together. So we're going to look at this passage, and what I'm going to do just to, to try to help you is we're actually going to give out a handout because there's a lot that has been explained here. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. I got a handout uh, that I want them to pass out. I'd like to give this to um, every adult, uh, assuming you're going to stay awake for the sermon, of course. If you're planning on going to sleep, then just tell them you're not, you don't need it. But uh, if you're planning on staying awake, I'd like awake, uh, not awake. If you're planning on staying awake, I'd like for you to grab one of these handouts and I think it'll help you maybe to see 
an illustration regarding what it is that we're talking about. I'd like every adult to have one um, and every teenager to have one. And every, every child can have one too if they, if they are able to pay attention and comprehend. Obviously, if they're not a child that, that doesn't even know they're in church right now or whatever. Um, I'd like uh, everyone to have that. Now, let me just give the disclaimers, okay? This is a drawing made by some human being. All right. I'm not saying everything on here is correct. In fact, there's things that I can tell you right now are not correct. But it's just meant to kind of help you get an idea of what it is that we're talking about regarding the tabernacle. And I'd like you to be able to have that and, uh, and then go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And let's just kind of jump into this. Hebrews chapter 9. When we're talking about the tabernacle, what we're talking about is a tent. Of course, we know that later uh, Solomon would build a temple that will replace this tabernacle. And this, that temple will be a physical building, a structure, that will pretty much be a permanent version of the tabernacle. But God commanded the children of Israel in the Old Testament, as they were wandering in the wilderness, to build a tent. The reason that it was a tent is because they were wandering through the wilderness. And he, they needed to be able to pack it up and move out. And what we have, the word tabernacle simply means tent. It's just a tent. Uh, it's a very fancy tent, very expensive tent. And the tent, this tabernacle, is divided into two sections, two rooms. There's one large room, and there's all, all the measurements are given in, in the Old Testament, of course. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but pretty much two-thirds of the tabernacle are the main first room. And then there's a second room behind the veil. And these rooms have furniture in them. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's explaining this. What I want to do is I want to explain to you the layout of the tabernacle. And then I want to give you some typology and show you how these things all point to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll start with the first section of the tabernacle. If you're taking notes, you, you can take notes or just uh, look at the picture or whatever. Uh, but we'll begin with the first section of the tabernacle, which is where the writer of Hebrews begins. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse number 2. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2, the Bible says this, For there was a tabernacle made. Of course, this is the sanctuary, this is the tent. It's referred to in many different ways um, throughout the Bible, but this is what we're talking about. For there was a tabernacle made, and then he says this, The first wherein was. Now when he says the first here, he's referring to the first part or of the first room, the bigger room of the tabernacle, he says the first wherein, meaning inside of that first area, was, and then he details for us, the different furniture that was in that first room or first section of the tabernacle. He says wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now notice He's telling us the things that are in that first room. The first thing he tells us there in verse number two is the candlestick. He says, wherein was the candlestick? Now, you're there in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, if you kept your place in Exodus, go back to Exodus 25, if you would. I realize I'm going to ask you to do a lot of things. You're looking at a picture. You're in Hebrews. You're in Exodus. Let's see how well you can balance these things. Exodus 25, and look at verse number 31. Exodus 25 and verse 31, the Bible says this, And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. So God commands the children of Israel to make this candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be, made with his shaft and his branches and his bowls 
his knops and his flowers shall be of the same. So we see that the writer of Hebrews tells us the first piece of furniture in this tabernacle that he wants to bring to our attention was wherein was the candlestick. We see in Exodus 25 that God commanded the children of Israel to build the candlestick. By the way, if you remember from Sunday morning, this is why the children of Israel, they're bringing curtains, they're bringing gold, they're bringing all sorts of things because they're going to build this tabernacle, not just the tent, but all the furniture that goes into it, uh, skilled men that could um, do these things with the gold and, 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 and create these things. Uh, volunteered to do so. And here in Exodus 25, we're told they were commanded to make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be. And just by the way, so you understand, this candlestick is the only source of light in the tabernacle. If you look at your picture here, like I said, this is just a picture made by human beings and there's going to be errors in it or whatever. But you see that there's a big candlestick in the middle of the center room. And of course, the Jews call this a Manoah or something like that. I just like to use the biblical terms, a candlestick. But this was a candlestick that had oil that was given as a fuel to keep it lit. And this was the source of light in the Bible. And here's what I want you to understand. All the things in this tabernacle are going to point us or be a type or typology of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a source of light in the tabernacle. We have the only source of light in the tabernacle, which is this candlestick. You're there in Exodus. You're in Hebrews 9. You're in Exodus 25. I'd like you to go to the book of John, John chapter number 8. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now do me a favor, and, and, and hopefully I'm not overwhelming you. I'd like you to keep your place in John as well. Okay, those are the only places I'm going to have you stay in. We're going to look at a lot of passages tonight, and I tried to make most of them go between Exodus and John. So if you can keep your place in Exodus and John, there'll be a few other verses we'll look at. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. But if you can keep your place in Exodus and John, Exodus and John, we'll be going back and forth between Exodus, John, and Hebrews. So I need you in Hebrews. I need you in Exodus. I need you to John. I need you looking at the picture. If you want to look at the picture, or you can draw your own picture, whatever you want to do. John chapter number 8. Notice what Jesus said. John 8 and verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, notice what he says. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So I want you to notice that there's a candlestick that goes into this tabernacle. It is the only source of light in the tabernacle. Those that came into the tabernacle could only be uh, seen because of the source of this light. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So we see how this, tab this, this, this candlestick pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light. He is the source of light. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Notice the second piece of furniture. Hebrews chapter 9. And look at verse number 2 again. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2. The Bible says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick. We talked about that. And here's number two, the second piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the table of showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we have the table, we have the table of showbread. So it is a table that has bread on it. And the purpose of the bread is to show. It's simply there for people to see it symbolically. The showbread and then we're told this is in what is called a sanctuary. So this would be the first main room. 
The entire tabernacle is called a sanctuary, or just that first main room is called a sanctuary. Also, it is called the holy place. It's the first big room. So what's in that room? We've got the light, and then we've got a table with bread on it, with show bread. Go back to Exodus 25. Look at verse number 23. Exodus 25 and verse number 23. Exodus 25, 23, the Bible says this. Thou shalt also, this is God commanding the children of Israel, thou shalt also make, notice, a table of shittim wood. So he tells them, I want you to make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof. In the ancient world, a cubit was, we're told, about 18 inches or the size of the average person's uh, length of their uh, arm from their elbow to the top of their finger. And here he tells them to make it two cubits shall be the length thereof and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So it's, it's two cubits long uh, is the length, and uh, a cubit wide is the breadth, and then a cubit and a half is the height thereof. So he tells them, I want you to make this table. Notice verse 30. And look, we could read a lot about this. I, I, I'm trying to cut out as much as I can. Um, look at verse 30. And thou shalt set upon the table, notice the words, show bread, before me always. So there's always, they're commanded to always have bread. Uh, and there was 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were all to be set on that, uh, on that table. Now they could be eaten once they were no longer being used. They were to be replaced on a regular basis. When they were first made, they were consecrated for the Lord. They were placed there for a certain amount of time to show, and then when the new bread would come, that old bread would then, which wasn't old, it hadn't been sitting there that long, would be given to the Levites and the priests, and, and they could eat it. So what do we have in the tabernacle? We have the light. Jesus comes to this earth and says, I am the light of the world. What do we also have in the tabernacle? We have a table that is set with bread. Notice how this points to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Go back to the book of John, John chapter number 6. Look at verse number 35. John chapter number 6 and verse number 35. Notice what the Bible says. John 6, 35. And Jesus said unto them, we saw in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Of course, in the book of John, we have these great I am statements by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 6, 35, the Bible says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So we see that Jesus says, I'm, in the tabernacle we have a lamp that provides light, the only source of light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In the tabernacle, we have a table of showbread, a beautiful table that has bread on it. And then Jesus comes to this earth and he says, I am the bread of life. We see how these things are all pointing their types or typology of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Hebrews chapter number nine. Hebrews chapter nine. Notice what he says in verse number three. Now in verse number three, we transition and we're going to divide the tabernacle now. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3. Notice what he says. And after the second veil. So this room is divided into two sections. You've got the first room that takes about two-thirds of the space. Then you have a veil. And then behind the veil, you have the second room, which is a smaller room. Notice it described here in Hebrews 9, 3. And after the second veil... The tabernacle, which is called 
the holiest of all. So notice the big room is called the sanctuary or elsewhere in the Bible is referred to as the holy place. And then the second room behind the veil is called the holiest of all. In other places in the Bible, it's called the holy of holies um, uh, it's the, or the most holy place. So you have a veil that separates the main room from the second room, the big room from the little room, and the big room is called the holy place. The second room is called the holiest of all. That's what's being described here. And there's a veil that separates the two. Go to Exodus 26. Exodus 26. I'm not going to talk a lot about the veil tonight because we're going to talk about the veil next week when we continue in Hebrews 9. But let me just show you a couple things about this veil. Of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the veil plays a role at the time of the death of Christ. Exodus 26, look at verse 31. Exodus 26, verse 31, the Bible says this, And thou shalt make a veil, notice what they're supposed to make it of, of blue, this is referring to uh, material, that is blue, and purple, and scarlet, and, notice these words, fine twined linen. The word twine there means to interlace or to interweave. And what I want you to notice, and again, I'm not going to talk a lot about it tonight, but we'll talk about it next week, I just want you to remember this, that this veil is not just a curtain. You know, we often just refer to it as a curtain, and there's nothing wrong with calling it that. But this is a very thick curtain. It's, it's made of many different materials, blue and purple and scarlet. It's all fine twinned, uh, twined linen. It's interlaced and interwoven of cunning work. With cherubims shall it be made, and thou shalt hang it upon, notice, four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Four different pillars had to be set up to hold up. Uh, this veil that thou mayest bring in hither. Notice there verse 33. And thou shalt hang up, excuse me, verse 32. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver, verse 33. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in hither within the veil the ark of the testimony. So I want you to notice that they're being instructed here. You're going to set up this veil, and then on the other side of the veil, within the veil, you're going to bring in the Ark of the Testimony. So in the smaller side of the room is where you have the Ark of the Testimony, and this veil cuts off that smaller part or separates that second room from the main room. I also want you to notice this. The Ark is referred to here as the Ark of the Testimony. Just make a note of that in your mind. And remember that the word testimony is associated with the Ark. Look at the last part of verse 33. And the veil shall divide unto you between, notice, the holy place, that's the larger room, and the most holy, or the holy of holies, or the holiest of all. So the sanctuary, the, the big room, is the holy place. The veil separates the two. And then on the other side, the smaller room is referred to as the most holy place, or the holy of holies, or the holiest of all. Now in verse 4, he gives us the third piece of furniture, or part of furniture he brings up, and it's a golden censer. Notice it here in verse 4. Which had the golden censer. Now, let me just stop right here. And like I said, tonight it's like a Bible college course, okay, or, or lessons. So just hopefully you just like the Bible. You know, I like the Bible. I just like learning about the Bible. But um, in verse 4, there's a little bit of controversy and conflict because people argue 
about, because here the writer of Hebrews makes it sound like the golden censer is on the inside of the most holy place, right? Because in verse uh, number three, he said, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, then in verse four, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, and he goes on. And uh, so people will, will argue about that because most people believe that the altar with the censer was in the sanctuary or in the bigger, the holy place. In fact, if you look at your picture here, you'll see that you have the lamp and then you'll have the table and then you also have this kind of looks like a pulpit with poles, but this was the altar of incense. This is where they would burn incense and, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, you, you would have loved, uh, if, you, if, if you like, you know, all the ladies that like essential oils and all that, you would have loved the tabernacle. They were burning all sorts of incense and things, you know, for the Lord. So there's this little bit of argument. And let me just kind of explain to you what I think is going on here. Uh, there's some confusion about whether the altar of incense and the golden censer are in the first room, the holy place, or the second room the Holy of Holies. And what you have to remember is that the altar of incense is where the incense is burned. And then the golden censer is actually uh, a tool that would be used to put coals and to put the incense into to be able to carry the incense. Um, And that's what's being referred to here as the golden censer. So we're not being told that the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies necessarily. We're being told that the golden censer is being, uh, is in the Holy of Holies, the incense is done in the holy place and then put on this censer where they, they can carry the coals and carry, and it, it would uh, allow for the incense to burn and they could carry it with them, all right? So go to Leviticus real quickly. If you kept your place in Exodus, right after Exodus, you have the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. I think this passage of scripture will kind of shed some light as to what is being described here uh, in, in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 16, and I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about this or, or know all of it. But I think the Bible does uh, give us some clarity here. Leviticus 16 and verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. Leviticus, if you kept your place in Exodus, right after Exodus, you have Leviticus. Leviticus 16, 11. The Bible says, And Aaron, if you remember, Aaron was the first high priest, shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now, what's being described here is the day of atonement. We've already talked about this in the book of Hebrews, but the only time that, a, that someone could go into the holy place, in that first room called, excuse me, the first room called the holy place, priests went into that room every day. Sacrifices were being done every day. Bread had to be replaced. Oil had to be added to the lamp to keep it burning. The, those lamps were never supposed to go out. So priests, the high priests and other priests, are going in and out of that holy place Every day, the holy place, the, the, the holy of holies or the most holy uh, place, the second room, only the high priest was allowed to go into that room and, only, and he could only go in once a year on the day of atonement. That's what's being described here in Leviticus 16. When the high priest enters into the holy of holies, he gives a sacrifice for the errors of the people or the sins of the people, but he first has to give a sacrifice for himself, because he himself is a sinner. That's what we're reading, Leviticus 16:11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. Verse 12. And he shall take, notice the wording here, he shall take, meaning he's taking it with him, or he's carrying. He shall take 
a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it, notice these words, within the veil or on the other side of the veil. So I believe what the Bible is saying here is that Aaron or the high priest is actually carrying the golden censer with the burning coals from the holy place and he's carrying it with him around the veil or across the veil into the most holy place. Look at verse 12 again. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals, a fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. He's taking it into the second room, into the holy of holies or the most holy place. Look at verse 13. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense, notice his words, may cover the mercy seat. Now, we haven't talked about the mercy seat yet. We're going to talk about it here in a little bit. But that's part of the ark. It's the top part of the ark of the covenant. That is upon the testimony that he die not. Again, remember and notice that the word testimony is associated with the ark. It's the ark of the covenant. It's the ark of the testimony that is upon the mercy seat is upon the testimony that he die not. So we have the golden censer. And the golden censer, I believe that the altar of incense is on the holy place, most, more than likely. And he's taking the coals from off the censer, putting, from off the altar, putting it on the golden censer, burning coals with smoke, with incense. He's carrying this, and he's taking it with him across the veil into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement as part of the rituals for the atonement. Now let's talk about this censer. You know, what, what, because we're looking at how all of this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You have the lamp. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You have the showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What about the, the golden censer? How does that picture the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the golden censer and the incense actually has a type of its own that is pretty consistent throughout the Bible. And how that connects to the Lord Jesus Christ just takes an additional step for you to consider if you've not considered it, all right? Go to Revelation chapter 5. I know I told you we would be in Exodus and, and John, and we are going to be in Exodus and John. This is one of the additionals. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. You're like, I've got too many, you know, I'm carrying, I'm already holding this picture. I already have a finger in, in Hebrews and in Exodus and in John. I can't go to, you know, please don't take your shoes off and start using your toes. I'll just read it for you. But if you can manage to get to Revelation chapter 5, it's the last book in the New Testament, it should not be too difficult to find. Revelation chapter 5, let me just say this. The incense throughout the Bible represents the prayers of the saints. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 8. Let's just run a couple verses on this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, notice these words, and golden vials, this is the same as a golden censer, full of odors, Notice this word, which are the prayers of the saints. The Bible represents the prayers of the saints in the same way that they would take burning coals and they would pour incense or burn incense upon that coal and it would cause a smoke that produced a fragrance that would travel up in the air. That's the picture that God uses to illustrate our prayers. When you and I bow our heads and we pray to our Heavenly Father as those prayers travel up to heaven, it's a sweet-smelling incense unto the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of prayer. A golden vial full of orders, which are the prayers of the saints. Go to Revelation chapter 8. 
Revelation chapter 8. Look at verse number 3. I realize I'm giving you a lot of information. But I think it's just good for us to have this information. We should know. I want you to be the most educated church in this uh, city. Revelation chapter 8, look at verse 3. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. And another angel came and stood at the altar. That's the altar of incense. Having a golden censer. It's exactly what we read about in Leviticus. What we read about in Hebrews. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints. Notice how there's a connection between incense, the golden censer, the incense going up, and the prayer of, of the saints. There was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And, he, and the smoke of the incense, of course this is in heaven, this is not the tabernacle on earth. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So we see that the incense, and we could look at a lot of other passages. I'm not going to do it. I think we've made the point. The incense represents the prayers of the saints. The incense is a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord as it travels up to heaven. So then the question is, well, how does that picture the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, because we have the light. We can see how he's the light of the world. We have the bread. We can see how he's the showbread. Well, here's what's interesting about the golden censer and the incense that represents the prayers of the saints. Go back to John chapter 14. The answer to the question is this. Saints, well, let's look at the verse. John chapter 16, look at verse 13. The incense represents the prayers of the saints. John 14, 13 says this. We've seen this in Hebrews as well, but we'll see it here in John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name. By the way, this sermon is not online. The internet's down. It's been down all day. So sometimes you just have to come physically to church. You know what I mean? John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask, notice these words. This is Jesus speaking. Ask in my name. That will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. How is the altar of incense and the golden censer a type of Christ when it pictures the saints, the prayers of the saints? It's a type of Christ because the only reason that you and I get the opportunity to offer prayers unto the Lord is because we're able to come to the Lord in prayer in Jesus' name. We have access to God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the access or the authority. So the only authority we have to send up prayers to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see how the golden censer still is a type of Christ, though it pictures the prayers of the saints, because the only reason you and I get to pray to God the Father is through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we pray in His name. Amen. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. So we've seen the candlestick, we've seen the table of showbread, we've seen the golden censer. Now we're going to get into the big one. And the big one has subcategories. And I'm not trying to confuse you, I'm just trying to prepare you so you can be ready, in case you're taking notes. <coughs> Hebrews 9, look at verse 4. Which had the golden censer, we talked about that, that's number 3. Here's number four, and the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was, and then we're told of things that were in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is inside of the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. 
in that second room that the high priest would only go into once a year, only the high priest, only once a year, would enter past the veil into the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant reside. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? And it's pretty much a box. It's a box that is overlaid with gold, and obviously it's very decorative, it's a very beautiful box. Look at verse 4 again, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. And then we see the word wherein, meaning inside of which, and then we're told the things that are inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant was a box that held things inside as a testimony, which is why it's also referred to as the Ark of Testimony. Now, you've got your picture there of the tabernacle, and you see how the veil is kind of pictured there, but it's, it's, you can see through it, so you can see into the most holy place, but you have the veil, then you have the second room, which is the Holy of Holies. On the back of your picture there, you have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me just say this. Again, nobody knows what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. This is just somebody's rendering. The Bible says that there are cherubims over the Ark of the Covenant, and most people, what they depict as cherubims isn't even what the Bible describes as cherubims. So I'm not saying that this is what it looked like. I'm just trying to give you an idea. It was a box overlaid with gold made out of shittim wood. It had these poles so that the Levites could carry it without touching it. Because if you remember, they touched the box, they died. There's lots of stories in the Bible about that. So you have the Ark of the Covenant. Then in the Ark of the Covenant, there are several things we're told that are inside of the Ark of the Covenant. What are they? Look at verse 4 again. Which had the golden censer, Hebrews 9 verse 4, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about uh, with gold, wherein, so what are the things that are inside, wherein was, here's the first thing, the golden pot that had manna. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that inside, if you would have opened the lid and looked inside, which I do not recommend because people actually did that in the Old Testament and died, and a plague and all these things. But if you would have done that, you would have seen that inside was a golden pot of manna. Now, what is this? We'll go to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, look at verse number 33. If you kept your place in Exodus, Exodus 16, verse 33, notice what the Bible says. Exodus 16, 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of, an omer is a, a measurement, put an omer full of manna therein. Remember, manna was a bread that God sent from heaven every day to feed the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness, except for the Sabbath day. Every day, they would go out, they would find enough bread for themselves, and they would eat it. They were not allowed to take more bread than they needed. Only the bread that they would eat for that day. If they tried to hoard the bread, it would uh, go rotten, it would corrupt, it would have worms in it. Every day, they had to go and get the bread they needed for that day, except for on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, the day before the Sabbath, God allowed them to take two, two uh, days' worth because they did not go out on the Sabbath day to get the bread. This is what's being referred to here, Exodus 16, 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations, verse 34. And the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, so this is not just Moses' idea, God told Moses to do this. Notice last part of verse 34. So Aaron laid it up before the testimony. Remember, it's the ark of the testimony. It's being referred to here. To be kept. So we see that in Exodus 16, 
Moses is commanded by God and he tells Aaron to take a pot, a golden pot, fill it with manna and to put it inside of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why Hebrews 9.4 tells us that in the Ark of the Covenant, wherein was the golden pot that had manna. Go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now remember, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but the manna has several applications. The first is this. The manna is applied as the word of God, the bread. If you remember over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this was quoted. But in the Old Testament, God says that he fed them with manna in the wilderness that man might know that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the idea is this, that in the same way that the children of Israel went out every day and picked up bread, you and I are expected to wake up every day and open up the word of God and read it and be nourished. And don't get this idea that says, well, I read nine chapters a day in the month of January, so now I don't have to read the Bible for the rest of the year. No, no, you got to read it every day. Amen. Give us this day our daily bread. If you try to hoard it, it won't help you. Every day, God wants you to take the word of God. So we see that the manna represented the word of God. That man may know, uh, that man shall not live by bread alone, uh, or bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The manna also, however, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, look at verse 49. John 6, 49. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Notice verse 51. We already saw it. Jesus says, I am the living bread. Notice, which came down from heaven. Same way the manna comes down from, came down from heaven. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is give his my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So you might be asking, well, which one is it? Is it? Does it picture the Word of God, or does it picture the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Amen. Remember, He is the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So the bread, the showbread, pictures Christ. I am the bread of life. But the manna specifically pictures the fact, the humanity of Christ, the fact that the Word came down from heaven, the bread came down from heaven, and was made flesh. Here's the point that I want you to understand. Everything in this ark, along with everything in the tabernacle, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to open the ark, which again, I do not recommend, you'd find a golden pot full of manna, bread that literally came from heaven, and it pictures the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So the golden pot pictures the humanity of Christ. The Word made flesh. Go back to Hebrews 9. What's the next thing in this ark? Look at verse 4. Hebrews 9 and verse 4. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot of manna. That's the first thing. Then here's the second thing that's in the ark. And Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod that budded. We are studying the book of Numbers. And not that long ago, we did a whole sermon out of Numbers 17 from the story of Aaron's rod that budded. Go back, go to Numbers 17 if you would. If you kept your place in Exodus, you have Leviticus, then Numbers. Numbers 17, let's look at it real quick. Do you remember the story? Korah's rebellion, 
Dathan, Abiram, they've rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against Aaron. Aaron has been chosen as the high priest of God. They want to replace Aaron with themselves. So they have this little challenge where they all bring a rod, every man, to represent 12 rods, to represent the 12 tribes. And they put all the rods in the tabernacle. They go to bed. They come back the next day. And the idea was that whosoever rod budded, spring flowers, spring some life, that was a symbol that that's who God had chosen. Of course, we know that Aaron's rod is the rod that budded. Number 17, look at verse 10. Number 17, 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod, his rod that budded, again before the testimony, or the ark of the testimony, to be kept for a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. So we see in Numbers 17 that God instructed that they not only, Exodus 16, put a golden pot of manna inside the ark, but God instructed that they put Aaron's rod that budded inside of the ark, which is why the writer of Hebrews tells us the golden, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Now, how is this a type of Christ, or how does this point us to Christ? Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. I don't want to take a lot of time on Aaron's rod, because I just preached a whole sermon about it not too long ago, but let's just remember a couple of things. First of all, it was the way that God showed that he chose Aaron as the high priest. Aaron's rod shows that Aaron was chosen as the high priest. Well, we know this. The Lord Jesus Christ was chosen as the greatest high priest. Not only that, and more important than that is this, that if you remember, a rod, a staff, is made from a piece of wood, a branch that is dead. It's from a branch from a tree that once had life, died, and now does not produce. But Aaron's rod pictures that God can bring that which is dead and bring life to it. A rod that was dead, a branch that no longer was alive, sprang life out of it. It was Aaron's dead branch that budded. Aaron's dead branch, we're told in Numbers 16, it had flowers, it had uh, almonds, it sprung life. That is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. That though he was dead, he lives today. He sprang up. So we see that Aaron's rod not only pictures the, that Jesus Christ was chosen, but it type, it's a type of the resurrection. And what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus was the Son of God. Amen. So the manna represents the humanity of Christ. Aaron's rod that budded represents the deity of Christ. His resurrection. The fact that God chose him, and though he was dead, three days later, he rose Again, he sprang to life. Then there's a third thing in this ark. Go back to Hebrews 9. Look at the third thing in verse 4. Last part of verse 4. And, here's the third thing, the tables of the covenant. The tables of the covenant. What is this? These are the, the tables of the Ten Commandments. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I know we're looking at a lot of passages, okay? Just, we're almost done. Deuteronomy, I don't know if we're almost done, but Deuteronomy, it sounds good. Deuteronomy 10. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. The faster you move, the faster we can be done, all right? Yeah. Hebrews, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, look at verse 1. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. At the time the Lord said unto me, this is Moses speaking, 
Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. That's referring to the ark of the covenant. And I will write on the tables of the, the words that were in the first table, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. What is going on here? Remember, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with two tables of the Ten Commandments that God, the Bible says that God uh, cut out these tables and wrote with them with the finger of God. He comes down, the children of Israel are worshiping a golden calf. He gets so mad, he breaks it, right? And we see that Moses has a problem with uh, breaking things. He, he, he smote the rock. He broke the ark. So here God says, okay, I'm going to give you another one. But he said, you have to hew the two tables of stone like unto the first. God makes, God makes Moses do it. Makes him cut it out and do the work. And then, verse 10, and I will write on the tables the words that were in the first table, which thou breakest. It's kind of, to me, it's funny because he's like, remember those, the, the ones you broke? And then he says, and thou shalt put them in the ark. He said, you put them in that ark and don't break them again, okay? Put them somewhere they're going to be safe. So inside the ark is the two tables of the Ten Commandments. What does this picture? Well, here's what it pictures. That the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Bible says, to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled all of the commandments. He fulfilled it perfectly, and that's what makes him worthy to be our sacrifice. Because here's the thing. Remember, someone had to fulfill the law perfectly to be able to die as the sacrifice for our sins. And the only person that could do it, it had to be a human. It had to be a human being. It had to be a man to die for the sins of mankind. But it had to be a perfect man. Well, no man could be perfect, so God, who is without sin, became man for us, lived a perfect life, never sinned, kept all the commandments, the manna represents the fact that God became flesh. The, the Aaron's rod that budded represents that he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He was deity. He came back to life. He was resurrected, though it was a dead branch. And the Ten Commandments show that this was all done that he might keep the command. Look, the Ark of the Covenant pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Hebrews 9. There's another part to this, covenant, this Ark, though. Hebrews 9, look at verse 5. Hebrews 9, verse 5. And over it, so now we're talking about the top of the box. Over it, the cherubims of glory. So they were supposed to put these cherubims, decorative cherubims, over the ark, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. What is this? What is this mercy seat? Go to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. So you have this box, but the top of the box had a lid. The mercy seat is what's being referred to as the lid of this box. Exodus 25, look at verse 17. Notice what the Bible says. Exodus 25, 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof, verse 20, and the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, 
and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. By the way, this is all picturing the throne room in heaven. If you remember in Revelation and Isaiah, in different places we're told that uh, in heaven you've got the cherubims that are, uh, that are worshiping God at His throne and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Look at verse 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat, this is that lid, above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony. That's the ark of the covenant, but the testimony, what's in it? The Ten Commandments, the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded. And thou shalt put the mercy seat, verse 21, above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there, notice verse 22, and there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which is upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, I don't have time to go into this tonight. We're going to look at it next week. But here's what I want you to say. The mercy seat had two major significances to it. The first was this. On the Day of Atonement. Remember the Day of Atonement? The only day, day that the high priest, only the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies on that day, he brought the blood of the sacrifice and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat seven times. This is what brought atonement. God met with man. It was the God-man. It was God manifest in the flesh. This is why the Bible says, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The mercy seat is where God would meet with man. Lord Jesus Christ. This is why 1 Corinthians tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God, Jesus is the mercy seat where God met with man and where atonement was made. So we see that all these things, all these things point and are a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got to finish this up. Let me just give you some concluding statements. Go to 2 Chronicles, if you don't mind. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. I think you'll find this interesting. I, I, I think you'll find it interesting. Just, just go to it, okay? We're, we'll be done here in a second. If you can find the one and two books, they're all clustered together. 1 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. I hope all of this has, has made sense to you uh, regarding the ark, uh, the, re, regarding the tabernacle and all the different things um, that have to do uh, with it. Okay. I have too many papers. I lost one of my papers. I don't know where it is. We, of course, saw the different furniture and the furnishings of the uh, tabernacle. Here it is. We saw how they all are a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The candlestick, I am the light of the world. The showbread, I am the bread of life. The golden censer, the prayers of the saints that we give in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. The golden pot represents that he's the bread that came from heaven, the humanity of Christ, that the word was made flesh. Aaron's rod that budded represents the resurrection, the deity of Christ, that he's the son of God. The mercy seat, where atonement takes place and where God met with man. All these things point to the Lord Jesus Christ and they're types of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just say a couple of things just as we finish up tonight. And let me say this. What we see in the Bible regarding the tabernacle, the temple, and the ark, and specifically the ark, because that's what we spent some time talking about, is the unimportance of the ark of the covenant. 
The Bible, it, it's very important in the Old Testament, but once you get into the, once you start traveling through the Old Testament and even as you get into the New Testament, you realize how much God doesn't really care about this. It was a symbol. It was symbolic. It was a type meant to point people to Christ. But other than that, there's not a lot of value to it. And it's interesting because God, now human beings put a lot of value to it. They put a lot of value on the ark. But God himself didn't. In fact, by the time, remember, we're reading about what was in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, in the holy place, was the ark with these things. But if you remember, Solomon builds a temple to replace the tabernacle. And by the time the building of the temple or the building of the first temple is, uh, is made, the ark is brought to the temple, but some things are already missing. Let me show it to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, look at verse 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. So Solomon builds the temple, and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, out of the tabernacle into the temple. Skip down to verse 10. Notice what the Bible says, 2 Chronicles 5, verse 10. There was nothing in the Ark, save or except the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now, we know that at the time of Moses, in the ark was the two tables, Aaron's rod that budded, and a golden pot of manna. But by the time Solomon brings the ark into the temple, the Bible tells us, the narrator, the Holy Spirit, is sure to tell us there's nothing in the ark except the two tables. The golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded are gone. Where are they? We don't know. They're just gone. And God doesn't even feel the need to explain to us, well, the bread went bad and the stick broke, or whatever. He just tells us, by the time we get to the temple, there's nothing in the ark except the two tables. But here's what's interesting. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Actually, yeah, go to Hebrews 9. What's interesting is this. Solomon's temple is destroyed. And then, of course, Ezra and Joshua and, and, and different men come back in captivity Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the prophet, and they rebuild the temple. There's a second temple. The second temple, when Jesus comes to this earth, it's to that second temple. It's been remodeled and renovated several times by Hezekiah the king, Joash the king. Also, history tells us Herod renovated the temple as well. But it's the second temple. By the time you get to the second temple, there's no ark at all. The ark is completely gone. I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is actually saying here in Hebrews 9.5 when he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He says, and over it, the cherubims of glory shattering the mysteries. Here's what he says, of which we cannot now speak particularly. He says, I cannot specifically tell you much about the Ark. What is the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost saying? He's saying, we don't know where the Ark is, and nobody knows where the Ark is, of which we cannot now speak particularly. You understand that? Nobody knows where the ark is, not even Indiana Jones, all right? <laughs> I never watched that movie, but, you know. Nobody knows where the ark is. And, you know, I, to me, I think that's, that's a good thing because, you know, if we had the ark of the covenant today, people would worship it. People would do pilgrimages to it, and they would worship it, and, and they would miss the point that the ark of the covenant was a type to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we see the unimportance of the Ark of the Covenant. But let me just real quickly, if, 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 you, if you'd allow me to just run a few verses, show you the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, if you would. If you kept your place in John, if you go right before John, you have the book of Luke, Luke 24. Like I said, tonight was more of like a, a, a college, Bible college lecture, and, and, and hopefully you got some good notes or whatever, and, and you understand some things. But let me just say this. Here's a big takeaway for us, and it's this. The entire Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing. Luke 24 and verse 27, the Bible says this, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, this is Jesus, the resurrected Christ in Luke 24. He's already died. He's resurrected. He's meeting the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The Bible says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did he talk about? I don't know what he talked about, but I'm sure he talked about the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the lamp, the showbread. And he told them, look, all these things were pointing to Christ. They're all pictures of Christ. Go to Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 43. You're there in Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Acts 10, 43. The Bible says this, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Look, the Lord Jesus Christ is that red thread that goes through the entire Bible. Amen. So when you're reading the book of Exodus and you're reading about the tabernacle being built and they're building this lamp and they're building this table and they're doing this and they're doing that, don't you know have your eyes glaze over and, and just kind of stop paying attention. Realize all of this is pointing us to Christ. Amen. It's all types of Christ. It's all pictures of Christ. It's all pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Let's bow our heads and I will pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you and we thank you for the Bible and we thank you for just the, these deep things that we can learn about and study, these types of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way in the Old Testament. It just shows us that you are a God that has a plan and a purpose. None of this was a mistake. All of this was planned out in advance, and we thank you for it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who want to study the Bible, are excited to study the Bible, want to have this information and know it so that we can love you and know you better. And Lord, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross to give us atonement for our sins, the great high priest. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.